Have you ever had that feeling when you leave the doctor's office and think, what did they just say? Or have any burning questions you didn't have time to ask? Or I don't remember anything that just happened in that appointment. Or even, were they speaking my language? Yeah, us too. That's where we come in. We're the podcast dedicated to helping you understand what your doctor said about that thing you saw your doctor for in the first place. We understand it can be an information overload. We're here to help. I'm Dr. Josh Fletcher, a family medicine resident at Northrop General Hospital in Toronto. And I'm Jake Bloom, the person who doesn't know what's happening at the doctor's office. Welcome to Dr. Dictionary. I just want to make a quick disclaimer that this podcast isn't meant to be a replacement for a traditional doctor's appointment, nor is it meant to be providing medical advice. Rather, it's meant to be a supplement to your doctor's visit and explain why your doctor asked what they asked and help you explain the diagnosis and common treatment plans. Lastly, doctors often have very different styles and approaches to a patient and their diagnosis. If we discuss a question or treatment plan that your doctor didn't mention, that doesn't mean that they were wrong. This could represent a different in practice style or simply the fact that your doctor knows you better than we do and has created a treatment plan that better fits your lifestyle. All right, and welcome back to another edition of Dr. Dictionary. Uh, This is part three of our contraception uh, series. And uh, last time we talked about hormonal uh, contraception, and this week we'll be talking about non-hormonal contraception. So can you remind me of what these options are again? So if you remember from the previous episodes, there are multiple different ways we can prevent pregnancy from occurring. One of these methods is using barrier protection or imagining putting up a wall between the egg and sperm so they can't meet and therefore can't form a baby. There are also some options that are toxic to sperm and kill it before it has the option to fertilize the egg. There are IUDs like we spoke about in the last episode that do not release hormones. And these ones are made of copper. Again, they act to be toxic to the sperm and lead to inflammation or a hostile environment in the cervix. There are methods surrounding fertility awareness, knowing where you are in your cycle and when you can have sex without risk of pregnancy. And this takes into account multiple different factors, which we'll talk about later. Temperature, mucus changes, specific testing kits to see if you're ovulating, etc., There is a withdrawal method, and it actually has quite a a funny name if talking about it medically. It's called coitus interruptus. And then abstinence is an option. Breastfeeding after you give birth can be related to contraception and be effective if you're continuing to breastfeed at preventing another pregnancy. And lastly, there are also surgical options, both for men and women, that can be quite effective methods of contraception. I think it's nice to know that even doctors sometimes have a little bit of a sense of humor and that when they're coming up with names for things, they decide, let's just make it very clear, coitus interruptus. That could actually be an incantation from like Harry Potter. I wish anatomy uh, was like that. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, would would definitely make things a little bit easier. Probably would have allowed me to stay in as opposed to fulfilling my dream of being a production assistant. So Josh, (laughs) compared to hormonal methods, how effective are these non-hormonal methods? So it really depends on what method you're talking about here. If you remember back to the previous episodes, we talked about perfect use versus typical or practical use. 
So with a lot of these barrier methods or non-hormonal methods, if used perfectly, they can be quite effective. But this perfect situation rarely happens because in the end, we're human. We can forget. We might not want to use them in all situations. Some can actually be equally effective, if not more effective than hormonal options. But these ones are more invasive. So for example, the copper IUD or the surgical options, tubal ligation or getting your tubes tied from a woman and the equivalent in a man, which is a vasectomy. Now, the other methods generally are not as effective as hormonal contraception in practice. For example, condoms. We often forget. They're not wanted. They can break, etc. Now, even with perfect use, some have very poor results like spermicides, which are chemicals that are used that are toxic to sperm. If you want actual concrete numbers on how effective these methods are under perfect use and realistic use, I encourage you to go check out sexandyou.ca and look at their contraception section. So you're saying that these methods are less effective because of the human error of it all. Exactly. So in the end, we're human. We're lost in the moment. We're not necessarily thinking about these things. We might forget to put on a condom. We might not have one handy or might not have a diaphragm handy when having sex. We may elect to try the withdrawal method and end up failing. We may try to use a sponge, for example, and insert it wrong so it's not effective. With the hormonal options, they're not in-the-moment methods. We plan for them accordingly each day. Of course, we can forget, but generally, we don't have to think about it in the heat of the moment, and that can lead to a higher success rate. Now, these non-hormonal methods, do they have as many side effects as the hormonal ones? So they're not as many side effects because we're not giving the body hormones. However, they can be expensive. They can sometimes be uncomfortable to use during sex. They can be messy. They can be loud. You might have trouble inserting some of the devices to the proper location. So overall, the term side effect is less, but they do have their own drawbacks. We've talked a lot about the drawbacks of these methods, but what are some of the benefits? So they can be beneficial in people who cannot use hormones as a method of contraception for whatever reason. And we talked about some of these reasons in the last episode. As well, if you remember from the first two episodes, we really stressed that these hormonal options do not protect you against sexually transmitted infections. However, non-hormonal options like condoms do, and that is a huge benefit of these methods. They're often over-the-counter, meaning you can get them at the drugstore without needing a prescription, and they're widely available. They can be used during breastfeeding. And the surgeries themselves are very effective and do not interfere with sex in the long term. In part two, you spoke about hormonal IUDs and mentioned a type of non-hormonal IUD. So what is that? So here we're referring to the copper IUD. It looks exactly the same as hormonal IUDs with that T-shape, but it doesn't work by releasing hormones. Instead, it's toxic to sperm and can cause a local inflammation, or like I've been talking about, that hostile environment in the cervix, which prevents pregnancy from occurring. Why might I want a copper IUD instead of a hormonal IUD? So like I spoke about in the previous episode, there may be reasons you can't have a hormonal IUD or can't use hormones in general. Right, right. You may also not want to deal with the risks of side effects from hormonal contraception, or you've dealt with it in the past and don't want to deal with it again. So compared to hormonal IUDs, how does someone insert a copper one? 
And are they similar at all? So first of all, insertion of copper IUDs is exactly like the insertion of hormonal IUDs. The devices we use to insert them are very similar. The techniques we can use to reduce this discomfort is the same. In general, like I talked about with the hormonal IUDs, they can be painful to insert, but this pain is very time-limiting, meaning it doesn't last for long. Often you'll feel a cramping in the stomach when they're inserted. There are smaller IUDs we can use for women who haven't been pregnant yet. There are also ways we can help the pain, like taking Advil or other pills beforehand, or even a vaginal suppository to reduce the pain. There are also techniques your doctor can try when inserting the IUD to try to make it less painful. Now, with the hormonal IUDs, there's a risk of expulsion or it falling out, and that's highest in the first year, and also a very, very small risk of making a small hole in the uterus or in the cervix when it's being inserted. But again, this risk is very low. And do these copper IUDs have any side effects? So they do. Because there's no release of hormones, though, we're not seeing those same PMS side effects that we might have got with hormonal contraception, like weight gain, headaches, breast tenderness. But we do see some other effects. Your periods can become heavier. There may be more cramping associated with them. The amount of bleeding days during the period might increase. So again, it's not a perfect option with no side effects, but that being said, it's very, very effective. In our last episode, you talked about one of the benefits of the IUD, which is the length that you could leave uh, them inserted. Is that the same case for the copper IUD? Exactly, it is. So similar to the hormonal options, like the Mirena or Kylina IUDs, we can leave these in for up to 10 years, depending on the IUD. I want to talk about some surgical options now. You mentioned that there are options for both men and women. When are these options typically considered? So these are permanent procedures. That's very important to note. They're done once you know for certain you do not want any more kids. And this is a conversation to have with your doctor to see if these methods are right for you. Because even though they're extremely effective, it does involve a small operation. And practically speaking, there's no going back. If my partner and I are debating both the vasectomy and the tubal ligation, which option should we elect for? Would it be like a coin toss sort of situation? How do you, how do you make that choice? So it's a shared conversation to have between the two of you and with your doctor. In the end, both are surgical procedures, and it's up to the couple to decide which one they would like to elect for and proceed with. In general, vasectomies or the male surgery are smaller procedures, they're more effective, and they can be cheaper than the female counterpart. And one important thing, like I mentioned earlier, just to remember, while these methods do not interfere with the quality of sex, they do not protect you against STDs or sexually transmitted diseases. So if you're having multiple sexual partners after using a method like vasectomies or tubal ligation, you still need to use some barrier methods like condoms to protect yourself from sexually transmitted diseases. Josh, do you know where the word vasectomy comes from? So the ending ectomy refers to the surgical removal of a body part. And the beginning of the word vas is actually a reference to a body part. It's called the vas deferens. And it's a tube that carries sperm from the testicles to the penis. So in the end, we are removing or cutting this tube to prevent the passage of sperm from the testicles where it's formed to the penis. 
So that's what's happening in a vasectomy. Exactly. So, of course, there is anesthesia involved in this procedure, but it's often only local, meaning you don't need a huge operating room and a mask to breathe from like you might have had in previous surgeries. Once the procedure is done, we do a final test to make sure there's no sperm in the semen that's left over. Are there any problems that can arise from the surgery? Like any procedure, there's always problems that can arise. Some risks include bleeding, infection, pain, and because you're cutting, damage anything around that area that you've been cutting, so around the vas deferens. There's no increased risk of cancer after this procedure. And it's also important to note that it's not effective immediately. We do need that semen sample afterwards to show that there's actually no sperm left over. Now, one other thing to mention. Another big problem with vasectomies and tubal ligation is regret. Because this is a permanent solution, and like I was mentioning earlier, I really want to stress that it's important to think this through before electing for a procedure like this. The equivalent surgery in females, which I think we mentioned is tubal ligation, what is actually done in this case? So the tubes refer to the fallopian tubes I described in the first episode. The word ligation refers to closing off of the tube so the egg cannot pass through. With this procedure, we often do need general anesthesia rather than local similar to other surgeries where they put you under. Now, one interesting fact, though, is it can be done during the same time as C-sections. Now, there's another procedure called tubular occlusion, where a camera is actually used for the vagina and the uterus to close off the tubes. But this method does take some time to work in about three months. And this is a decision and a process that you can speak more about with your doctor. Now, are there any benefits of having tubal ligation? So it is a very effective form of contraception, like we talked about. You don't have to think about it, and it's a very, very low risk of having children afterwards. Now, an interesting point as well is that tubal ligation is actually associated with a lower risk of some types of ovarian cancer Hmm. or cancer of the ovaries. But like I mentioned with vasectomies, it doesn't interfere with the quality of sex, but it also doesn't protect you against sexually transmitted diseases. And are there any problems that can arise from this type of surgery? So similar to vasectomies, you can have bleeding, infection, pain, and damage to surrounding structures in the area. And sometimes you can also have vaginal bleeding and cramping as well. So I guess the last method to talk about in this whole series of contraception are the natural methods that don't necessarily require anything special. And to be honest, I didn't realize there were so many options to choose from. Exactly. And that's why these appointments can take a long time when we're talking about contraception. There's lots of options to discuss and a lot of questions can arise. And that's why we decided to make four episodes dedicated to this series. All right, Josh, let's talk about the abstinence and withdrawal methods. How effective would you say these are in contraception? So you can easily deduce how these work. Abstinence is not having sex in the first place. And the withdrawal method is making sure before you ejaculate to withdraw the penis from the vagina, and avoid in the first place sperm meeting the egg. Now, these methods may not be effective. First of all, the withdrawal method's risky. It can be hard to time perfectly in all situations. And with abstinence, while this is obviously extremely effective, it can be quite challenging to maintain over time. Josh, can you explain what the fertility awareness method is? So before I do, If you haven't already, I encourage you to go back and listen to the first episode explaining how periods actually work. 
because if you do that, the fertility awareness method will make a lot more sense. Now, you'll remember me talking about ovulation that occurs in the middle of the cycle. If you time your sex around this time, you can get pregnant. And it's about four to five days before you ovulate to about one to two days after. So about this seven-day period around ovulation is when you can actually get pregnant. If you have sex out of this window, then you can avoid getting pregnant. So how would somebody know when this time is happening? So like I spoke about before, many changes happen to the body at this time. Your actual temperature rises. The mucus in the cervix changes. Hormone levels change, which you can actually measure by specific kits. Now you can track all these things to find out exactly when ovulation is occurring and avoid sex during this time. In your medical opinion, is this a good method to use? To be honest, no. You really have to know what you're doing. There are high rates of pregnancy using this method. And just a a question to pose, what if your cycle is irregular? How do I know exactly when to do this? The methods we were just talking about, you can use them, but it can be quite challenging if your period's irregular every month. And again, we're human. We don't always avoid having sex during this time, that perfect versus that typical use. So overall, it is a method, and that's why I'm mentioning it, but it's not really the best method. Lastly, you mentioned something about breastfeeding and pregnancy. Are you saying that you can't get pregnant when breastfeeding? So after giving birth, and if you are breastfeeding, because not everybody does, sure, there is a big release of hormones in the body that actually results in you not being able to have a baby. As you continue to breastfeed regularly, more hormones are released, and therefore you can become less likely to become pregnant. Now, this really only works right after having a baby and requires you to continue breastfeeding. And as always, where can our listeners go to learn more about these methods? So as the same in the other episodes of contraception, a lot of information is on sexandyou.ca. And that's directly from the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, or the SOGC. So I recommend checking out that website for everything you need to know about contraception, your periods, pregnancy, etc. And as always, if you guys have any other questions, feel free to book another appointment with your doctor. Email us at thedoctordictionary at gmail.com or tweet us at the Doctor Dictionary. So that concludes another episode of Doctor Dictionary. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you stay tuned for part four, which will be on emergency contraception. I'd like to thank Dr. David Eisen, Chief of Family Medicine at Northrop General Hospital in Toronto, for peer reviewing this episode, as well as Nick and John Bragagnolo for recording the original music. <laughs>